So for those of you not with us every single week, we are working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. So in just a minute, we're going to read a portion of chapter 14 that we left off in last week and then read through the end of chapter 15. Um, so we'll get to that in just a minute. So while you're flipping there to 1 Samuel chapter 14, have you all heard of the five love languages? The world we live in, my guess is you have. So the five love languages are words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality, quality time, and physical touch. And people love to make up these categories, these personality type categories, to try to help people better understand themselves and others. And the way that you are supposed to use these is to identify what your spouse, friend, or child, uh, what they respond to and what they need the most. So if your spouse is a service and gift type of person, you shouldn't focus only on words of affirmation or quality time. That isn't how they want you to show them affection. But regardless of which tool or these categories you use, the point is to know your family and friends better so that you can show them love well. Now, some of us do this better than others, but anyone who wants to sincerely love one another is going to work hard, at least to some extent, to love others well. And especially with our closest friends, we're going to put in a lot of effort to really get to know them in order to love them well, like we should. But here's the the real question for you. What are God's love languages? What does he want from you? What is the most important way for you to show your love for Christ? So many in our world, they want to love God when they feel like it, how they feel like it, without ever asking the question of what God wants them to do. And that can lead to emotionalism. It can lead to charismatic displays. It can lead to legalism and really a litany of other errors. We cannot truly love God in any way we want. If we are to truly love him, we must do so the way he wants us to do so. And that means that we need to look to his word in order to love him rightly because he is worthy of every bit of our love and worship. And so the big picture, the thesis for this sermon is that because God is glorious, he must worship rightly. So with that introduction, let's start in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and we'll start in verse 47. When Saul had taken kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinom, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. 
Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into line, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, as the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, it is better to obey than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now, Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore 
And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed down before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So we'll look at three points this morning. Uh, The first point, and you'll see it listed out there in your bulletin in the notes, but command disobeyed. That's the first point. So last week we stopped short of finishing up chapter 14. And the final section of that chapter, verses 47 through 52, give us a type of overview of Saul's reign. But the oddity is that this is more typical in Scripture of an author's summary of a king's reign just before recording their death. So when we read 1 Samuel, this overview is supposed to surprise us as readers and make us ask questions. The summary itself uses only positive language, though, to describe Saul's reign. But while positive, you may notice one thing sorely lacking in that explanation. And that is that there is not any mention of the Lord in that entire summary. And if you go and you look at similar summaries of David's victories in 2 Samuel, then the difference becomes very stark. So while presented in nice terms, it seems to be a statement that Saul's legitimate reign is about to come to a sharp end. And if we consider the events of chapter 15, then it seems even more likely that this is a way for the writer to show us the end of Saul's true reign. So remember that we are in the final stage of this section of 1 Samuel that shows us Saul's rejection and his downfall. And the final test here in this chapter, in chapter 15, for his obedience begins with receiving a command from the Lord through the prophet Samuel. So long before these events, long before Saul's day, the Amalekites had attacked Israel while they were in the wilderness just after they left Egypt and were on the way to Sinai. They hadn't even made it to Sinai yet when this tribe attacked. And as a result of that attack, in Exodus 17:14, God says to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So some 400 years later, God is going to judge and avenge his name on the Amalekites for their evil. Samuel told Saul that it was now his duty to completely annihilate the Amalekites for their evil. And Samuel specifically commanded them, commanded Saul, that is, do not spare them, but kill them. So some may question here how a good God could order this kind of attack. That doesn't seem very nice. Right. But that's where we need to remember that everyone is sinful and everyone is deserving of God's judgment. 
The question isn't why he judged the evil Amalekites, but why it took him so long. Why he put up with their evil for so long. But nevertheless, the command has been given to Saul. So now, will the king obey the Lord and his commands, or will he go his own way? Well, in verses 4 through 7, at the start, things look very good. Saul showed mercy to the Kenites because they were not Amalekites. They just lived among them. And they were not told exactly what this group did. Apparently, they were kind to Israel when they came out of Egypt, unlike the Amalekites. And we also know that Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, was a Kenite. And so thanks to the mercy that Saul shows, they were not caught in the middle of this conflict. So moving on, Saul and his enormous army, they march in and they crush the Amalekites. And you may be shocked how short the description of the battle is. Basically, we're just told they destroy him and that's it. But as soon as we get to verse 8, though, we see that Saul makes his mistake. Instead of obeying all of God's commands, he really only partially obeyed. He killed all of the people and most of the flocks, but he kept alive King Agag and the best of the livestock. God had declared in verse 3 that the Amalekites were under the Hebrew term karam. That word can mean banned, devoted, consecrated. The ESV uses the term devoted. And anything placed under this term, under karam, means that it is completely and totally devoted to the Lord means that no one and nothing can take anything from it because it all belongs completely to the Lord. And this was not the first time in Scripture that we see a failure to obey this command either. You may remember long before this, an an Israelite named Achan. And Achan went at the battle of Jericho and he took some things that he coveted among the spoil. And he hid them in his tent. And because of that one man's sin, that one man's failure to uphold Karam, 36 men of Israel die in a battle, and Israel's defeated. Then Achan and his entire family had to be put to death. So the question now is, how much more severe is this sin when the king of Israel chooses to despise God's command and take something that is devoted to God? That does not bode well for Saul. Now this word karam, it's used seven times in this chapter. And the initial command is in verse 3. But then in verses 8 and 9, we see how Saul and the army chose to understand this command. You see, Karim cannot be partially done. It doesn't work like that. Saul and the men, they take Agag alive and then they devote everyone else. Then they devoted all the bad livestock, all the things they didn't want. But then they kept anything of value they desired. They were sharing the Lord's things in their minds. So will God approve of their interpretation of his commands? We don't have to wait long before we find out what the Lord thought of this plan. We see the scene shift over to Samuel, who then receives a message from God. In verse 11, God spoke to him and he said, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And here we see a reminder that the Lord is not impersonal in how he relates to us. He is in changing and he is perfect, and yet he can also at the same time be grieved over sin. Now, the only other place in Scripture to use this exact phrase in verse 11 is in Genesis 6. And I do invite you to turn over there real quickly to Genesis 6.
So Genesis 6 and then verses 5 through 8. And just listen to the language that's used. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so there are parallels between that Genesis passage and this passage here in 1 Samuel. In both places, it is grief over the sin of mankind that leads to a statement of regret. The sin in both passages results in a judgment against that sin. And lastly, both judgments also lead to God choosing someone in grace. So in Genesis 6, that was Noah. While here in 1 Samuel, it's going to lead to the selection of David as the next king. But this is not God saying that he sinned or that he made a mistake. The word for regret can mean a deep emotional concern for a situation. God is always grieved by sin, although it can never change who he is. And it's not that God changes depending on what mankind does, but rather that what mankind does changes our experience of God, if you will. By that I mean that a sinner can sit under the wrath of the same God that a believer can sit under in grace. So that's not two separate gods. That's not one God in two modes, but two different perceptions of who this one unchanging God is. The Lord did not want Saul to sin in this situation, nor did he in any way make him sin. At the same time, it was no surprise or problem for God and his plans when Saul did fall. And in Samuel's reaction, we see a glimpse into the really the depth of grief and anger of God over Saul's sin. Verse 11 says that Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. So we're not told exactly what Samuel was angry about, but we have some guesses here. Samuel was the one who had anointed Saul and clearly cared for this misguided king. There was probably some anger that Saul would disobey so severely yet again. He may have recognized all the time and all the effort that he had put into ministering to Saul only to see him fail. He could have been pleading with God to rectify the situation and call him to repentance. It's really hard to say what the exact cause is, but regardless, Samuel felt deeply about this matter just as the Lord did. Saul had failed and he'd done so severely. Our second point, conversation and rejection. So Samuel went out in search of Saul in order to confront him over his disobedience. So imagine how much it encouraged Samuel when he was told that Saul had gone down to Gilgal after building a monument to himself. Indeed, the monument really served as a sign of Saul's self-interest. And after learning this, he went on and he found Saul in Gilgal, the same place that Saul had been declared king not long before. And Saul, ever the optimist, greeted Saul, uh, Samuel warmly, even boldly, declaring that he had obeyed God's command. I think you can tell from the text that Samuel was in no mood for Saul's pleasantries, and instead he confronted Saul three times for his sin. And his first reply was as sarcastic as it was probably stinging. 
Saul makes his excuse. Then Saul says, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Now, here would have been a good time for Saul to admit that he had sinned and to beg for mercy. But instead, we see that he does four things. First, he tried to distance himself from this failure. They, the army, save these animals a lot. Second, he had a reason for letting the animals live. They were for sacrificing to the Lord. Third, they were to sacrifice to the Lord Samuel's God. Really, it's, it's for you, Samuel, that we save these animals. And fourth, he tried to pass off that this partial obedience was, in fact, obedience by saying that he had devoted everything else. So while there was some truth in all of these things, they were just excuses in the end. So referring to the Lord as Samuel's God was meant as an act of humility by Saul, but really it showed that Saul was not truly serving Yahweh as he should have been. Well, the second rebuke begins in verse 16. Samuel, angry, tired, and frustrated with Saul's excuses, commanded the king of Israel to be silent. Samuel wasn't there during the battle, but the Lord had given him everything he needed to know, and now he had a message for Saul. And this rebuke was significantly more severe than the first one as the hardness of Saul's heart was revealed in his response. So you want to blame the people for this sin, Saul? You are the king of Israel. You are meant to lead them, not to bow down to their wishes. Israel was not a democracy. It was a theocracy under God with Saul as the human king. Blame shifting is not an option for a king who should know better. He had received one simple command, destroy the enemy completely and leave nothing alive. But instead, Saul and the army, are, they pounced on the spoil. Now, the word for pounce is used for a bird of prey diving down on its kill. So overcome with greed and covetousness, they swooped in and they took what belonged to God alone. And then Saul replies, not with repentance, but again, more excuses. Again, he tried to deflect the blame, saying it's the people's fault. He had obeyed God's commands. It was the army's fault. But hey, don't be too hard on them. They did it for a good reason, to sacrifice to God. Now, while that may have been true, it was still wrong. God didn't need their sacrifice. He was not a pagan God that needed to be fed or served. The point of the sacrifice was really for the people, not God. And furthermore, when bringing animals to offer sacrifices, the one offering the animal received a share of the meat. So that means that no matter what way you look at it, the Israelites wanted a part of what belonged to God. Meanwhile, Saul is insistent that he had actually obeyed. And it seems that blinded by his sin, he actually believed that he had obeyed. But Samuel, knowing that Saul's heart was hardened, he went on to rebuke him for a third and a final time. Now, the previous two exchanges left room for Saul to be able to respond correctly and to repent of his sin. There was some room for that. But Saul just didn't get it. He believed that ritual and external actions were enough to please God while ignoring the deeper reality of faith. God is far more concerned with obedience and the heart than he is with external actions. And Samuel stated this very poetically in verse 22. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 
God didn't want or need Saul's feeble offerings. He wanted Saul's heartfelt obedience. Failure to obey was so severe in God's eyes that Samuel may well have practiced divination and idolatry. And the irony, of course, of Samuel using those two examples is that later on, Saul's going to go to a medium. He's going to fall into really both of these sins. And we're not to that point yet. Now, often when we look at this text, we place the blame for Saul's failure on his sin of disobedience, which is, of course, partially true. But it was a lack of repentance and any remorse after his sin that was the real problem. And for this reason, Samuel pronounced God's verdict on Saul and on his reign. In verse 23, Samuel says, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, his dynasty had already been doomed to fail, but now his actual reign is over. And upon hearing these words, it initially seems that Saul may finally be repentant. But was he really grieved? Over offending the Lord. He confesses the right sin, but then he adds an excuse for why he disobeyed. The mighty king of Israel feared the people. Then he asked for Samuel to return with him so he can worship Yahweh. Well, that sounds like a good thing, right? How could that be bad? But was it a sincere request? And when we look at Samuel's response, it sheds some light on how we should evaluate Saul's confession. He refused. Saul's request because he was no longer the king. Because Saul rejected God's word, he had been rejected by the Lord and there was no going back at this point. Therefore, the prophet, he had no obligation and no duty to go with Saul any longer. And Saul, realizing this, acted in desperation. He reached out, he grabbed the hem of Samuel's cloak to beg for mercy. But rather than receiving mercy, Saul instead produced a confirming sign against himself. So as the robe tore, Samuel declared that just as the corner of this robe was torn off, so Saul's kingdom has been ripped away from him. Furthermore, God was going to give the crown to another Israelite, one who was better than Saul. Just imagine the sting of that declaration to an already very insecure man. In verse 29, we see a firm declaration that God's decision on this matter was final. There was no going back. The Lord does not change his mind or reverse course when he acts. And at this point, you would expect Saul to be a broken man. But instead, we really see the same old Saul that just doesn't really get it. He tries to admit his sin, but not really. This confession and the previous one were really about one thing. He didn't want to look bad in front of the elders and the people of Israel. He cared more about the externals. He wanted the pomp and the glory and the confirmation of Samuel's support before the people, even though he had been expressly rejected by God as king. Even after all the rebukes and the declaration of his rejection, Saul had not changed. So that brings us to the last point, command obeyed. So you you may have been surprised that Samuel in the end seems to acquiesce to Saul's plea to return with him. But his return may not actually be what you think. Verse 31 says that Samuel turned back after Saul, not with him, as Saul had requested. uh, Samuel may have even walked a distance behind him, which would really highlight that there was something going wrong, that there was a distance between God and the prophet. 
So we see that Saul goes to worship the Lord, but Samuel did something different. There's no mention that Samuel worshipped with the king. Saul wanted to put on a show to show that he was all right with God in front of the people. But instead, Samuel commands Agag to be brought forward. If you call this really leading by example on Samuel's part. And the example that needed to be shown was not how to pray or how to bow down, but how to obey. And so while Saul still wanted to put on, Samuel went and did the job that Saul should have done. And he did so before all the people of Israel. First, he pronounced a death sentence on Agag, and he highlighted the cruelty of this leader in that sentence. And then he brutally carries out this death sentence before the altar, before the Lord, at Gilgal. Now, the people, they knew what they were supposed to have done with Gilgal, and they had disobeyed along with Saul. So now both Saul and the people are convicted by Samuel's obedience. All of Israel completely failed to fulfill Karim on the Amalekites. And the responsibility for this failure fell primarily on the hard-hearted king that the people had asked for. So after executing God's judgment on Agag, Samuel did not speak with Saul or affirm him before the people as he had been asked. He went home to Ramah and Saul went home to Gibeah. And while those two places are probably less than 10 miles apart, Never again did Samuel speak with Saul. Saul was now officially an illegitimate usurper on the throne of Israel. Now, he would be there for many more years, but as a false king. And since he was formally rejected, the prophet of God was not able to deliver God's word to him anymore. He would never benefit again from God's special guidance through Samuel. His separation from Samuel was a sign that his relationship with the Lord had been totally severed. So in effect, what we have now is a pagan king on the throne of Israel. And yet after all that, you may have been surprised that the Lord was grieved by Saul's rebellion. And we're told again that he regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now this is the same phrase and meaning of the phrase that we saw back in verse 11. Human sin and rebellion grieve the Lord, especially over those who are supposed to be a part of God's people or a leader over God's people. Saul's sin was first and foremost against the Lord and his goodness. The Lord did not make Saul rebel, nor did his rejection please the Lord in any way. Our God is good and loving, but he is also just. And that means unrepentance Uh, Unrepentant disobedience and faithlessness bring judgment and rejection. So how do we apply this text? Well, in the previous chapters leading up to this, we've seen the importance of walking by faith and not by sight, focusing on faith and not external actions. And that's a huge application point for this section. And we could spend a lot more time talking about that. But I think that there are two other points we should stress this morning instead, since we've hit on those in previous weeks. First is that disobedience and rebellion cause grief. When someone falls into sin and causes division and fallout, it damages relationships. Unrepentant sin damages ties with spouses, with kids, with parents, and with friends. It destroys relationships within the church, and it can lead to severe division in the church. And this is even worse when it comes down to the leaders that fall into sin. Now, it's 
a sorrowful thing for any believer to fall into sin. But even more importantly, this passage tells us that God is grieved by our sin. We're also told that we can grieve the Spirit through our rebellion. Sin is heinous because it hurts other people made in the image of God and it hurts the Lord. Consider also that our sin against God is as a finite creature against an infinite God. Our sins are made infinitely more severe by the mere fact of who God is that we are sinning against. So we cannot be under any illusions as a church as to the true nature of sin and disobedience. And for that reason, we have to take sin very seriously in every sense of the word. That was the first application. The second is that we must love and worship the Lord in only the ways that he has instructed us to do so. We cannot decide the right way to worship on our own. We don't get to deny our need for the church because it isn't perfect. We're never told to go to church because it's perfect. There are sinners there. It's not going to be perfect in this life. God's love language is sincere faith, repentance, and obedience. External actions and religious rituals, they are incapable of saving. God wants our worship, and he expressly outlines how we are to praise and serve him. So the big question, do you want to love God? Obey his word and worship in the way that he has commanded in his word. And when you find yourself out of line with scripture, don't offer excuses. Don't try to make something up as to why it's okay. Don't try to pass the blame on to someone or something else. Repent and then seek to obey moving forward. You have a Savior who loved you enough to go to the cross and die for you in your place to redeem you. So if you love Jesus, seek to obey and worship Him as He is asked. And we'll close with a summary from Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that in our hearts we are prone to rebellion. We are prone to sin. We want to rest in our own strength. We want to make excuses when we do sin. We want to worship in the way that we feel like rather than submitting to your commands. And so, Lord, forgive us for those things. Help us to leave reliance on ourself and instead to cling to Christ and to learn to obey him. Obedience is not how we earn our salvation. We are saved through Christ's blood. But once we are saved, you have called us to obedience as a result of our faith. So, Lord, help us to cling closely to the word that you have given us, that we might do what is pleasing in your sight, that we might live holy and blessed lives before you, that we might please you as our heavenly Father. For we lift all these things up to you. In the name of Christ, amen.